Hello and welcome to this interview with me, Bo Dade, and I am joined by Talk TV host, ex-MEP and current Deputy Leader of Reform UK, Dr David Ball. Dr Ball, how are you, sir? I'm very well indeed, thank you very much, Dean. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Yeah, no, no, it's our pleasure, of course. Um, I'd like to uh, just jump straight in, because I know your time is very precious. Just start talking about Reform UK and policy and strategy, all that sort of thing. And, but first of all, just sort of the view, the, the sort of the broadest view of the party, the sort of vision for a, a better Britain or a less broken Tory Britain. Well, I mean, I think, I think the whole thing comes under our slogan, which is let's make Britain great. This country is Great Britain. And quite frankly, right now, it isn't. Um, th this all goes back a long way, as you as you can imagine. So obviously, I got deeply involved in the Brexit vote. Um, the the powers that be decided we would have a referendum, and people voted on whether we should stay in or leave the European Union. People voted, as you know, to leave the European Union, and yet the powers that be at Westminster decided that people were too stupid to know what they were doing, and um, and therefore they did everything they could to to stop that happening. So I was incensed by that, and. Um, Look, the point is, whether you should have had that referendum or not is a slightly moot point, but we had it and people voted to leave, so therefore we had to leave. So I then decided to put my money where my mouth was and uh, then stood, uh, met Nigel Farage, uh, as you know, ended up in the European Parliament, and um, I was one of those MEPs that um, I think we had the most extraordinary success, you know, and, and against all the odds, we, we then left the European Union. Now, Brexit was really only the beginning of a much longer journey. And the whole point about Brexit was it was taking back control of our money, laws and borders. And quite mm -hmm. frankly, the current government has made an absolute hash of the whole thing. And, when, and, and in many ways, once we'd left the European Union, we decided that um, we would trust the Conservative uh, government. Now, that was a mistake, wasn't it? Boris Johnson, 80 mm -hmm. strong majority. We had a lot of uh, turmoil over standing down our candidates, which we then did. Uh, and the Brexit party sort of went into cold, cold storage. And we did that and we let them get on with it because we believed that we had to give them an opportunity to show that we were going to take back control of our money, laws and borders. But they didn't. And so Richard Tice and I uh, took the party off the ice bucket or out of the ice bucket. And um, we felt at that time that really Brexit was the beginning of a much longer journey. Uh, the, the whole idea is to have autonomy. This is a great country. And what we now have to do is to use that and move forward. And quite frankly, the whole system needs radical reform. And mm. that is how the name changed and where we're going. So we believe passionately <laughs> we can make this country great. And we can do that, but we need no more tinkering around the edges, no more of this political posturing. Let's get on with it, reform things that don't work and build a Britain that everyone uh, can, can really invest in, I think. Mm, absolutely. I wonder if I can just get down to real brass tacks straight away. I think one of the biggest issues of our, of our age, of our time, is immigration, mass immigration. I hate to just go straight to the heart of the matter, but, but that is what a lot of people, uh, they, see, they see the very nature of their towns and cities changed extremely quickly in terms of, in terms of demographic, let's be honest. That's what it is. And I, I mean, how, of course, the, the Reform UK policy is to have 
net zero migration, isn't yeah, it? That's, that's, that, is, that is the policy. I think, I think Richard, Richard and yourself should be screaming that from the rafters at, at all possible times because it's not just the small boats, I would like to say this, it's not just the small boats, it's also the, the extremely large numbers of quote-unquote safe and legal migration also, I think, needs to be brought down because... Um, if I could put it like this, I feel like if you abandon the concept of borders, then you're doing a, a great disservice to the concept of citizenship, really. You're even, you're even damaging the rule of law itself. And that's a terrible path to go down, is it not? Am I overstating things? No, it is. I mean, go, let's go back, take back control. The fact is, well, let's start with a small boat, shall we? 44,000 came in last year. It's predicted to go up to 88,000. This year, quite frankly, we have not got a grip on this. We have 140,000 people waiting in the backlog to be processed. The government's response currently is just let's open lots of centres. Let's stop send, uh, spending about eight uh, million pounds a day a day on hotels. So it's the, the official figure is about six million, but on top of that, there are additional costs. So it's probably eight nine million. Um, and so, hence why we've now got RAF Scampton and Weathersfield and the barge uh, in Portland. Now, the thing is, the, these are all sort of uh, closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. So the government knows this is a huge problem. The electorate also knows the government hasn't got anywhere near this. Now, to be <laughs> fair to them, the illegal migration bill has gone through with lots of kicking and screaming by various parties, including the Labour Party, by the way. Make no mistake that they really don't want to stop uh, migration, legal or otherwise. Um, but it just in terms of where we are, that, that's the illegal migrants. But then let's look at migration. Why have we let a million people into this country? So when you look at the net migration, and obviously people do leave, it's about 606,000. Now, when you look again at the, the, the jobs in this country, 5.2 million not employed, not in training, should be employed. And this morning I had a massive argument with uh, a, an economist who actually used to uh, advise Gordon Brown. And he was saying, well, you know, Brexit's to blame because we can't have all of this uh, labour from the European Union. No, the point is that actually by bringing in cheap labour, you undercut British wages. What we have to do is to train our own people, to give them a sense of responsibility, ownership, get them into jobs, and then also service <clears throat> the British economy with British people. Yeah, no, good point. I mean, uh, all, all great points. And we talk about millions of people. This is an unprecedented thing in all of history. This isn't normal. This isn't OK, because there's the economy side of things. But I think there's a much broader point. The idea that down the road, and I don't think this is too crazy, you'll be looking at the, the balkanisation of Britain. In well, Leicester so last summer, just quickly, uh, in Leicester last summer, there was sort of mass rioting for days on end between Indian Hindus and uh, Pakistani Muslims in Leicester, in the heart of England. Now, extrapolate, extrapolate that down the road, you, you'll end up with enclaves, giant enclaves of, of foreign people that bring their values and their hatreds to our country and they play out in our country. That, is that not a complete madness? Of course it is. But you see, it always—I mean, it all goes back a very long way. But let me take a hometown near me, or Ipswich, for example. Block booking of hotels. Ipswich is unrecognisable. Um, I have no idea what they are doing. So essentially, you're swamping. 
essentially a market town full of people from different countries, as you rightly say. Look, I don't have a problem with using immigration to help this economy. But if you come here, you have a duty to learn English, you have a duty to assimilate and to get yourself involved in the community. One of the other things, when I was a junior doctor about 3,000 years ago in Ealing, in uh, West London, we created ghettos. We allowed people to come and live amongst their own communities, not speak English. When I was a junior doctor, none of them spoke English, so I had to have a translator. What a waste of resources. So we, the state, pandered to it by having all our signs in multiple languages. No, no other country would do that. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is have it in English, say, look, you're very welcome if you contribute to society, but you learn English and you also adopt British values. You do not keep to the values of your country. If you want to keep with those, you go back to your own country. <laughs> Quite right. And I know this is a bit uncomfortable of a conversation, a little bit difficult, uh, but I think it, it has to be had um, because, again, you look at, uh, again, the term balkanisation, but you will end up with, uh, it, it will end up in sort of quite a bad place in, in the, the examples of history of when large migrations of people with foreign values come in. So the idea that you come from, um, um, the, uh, from the subcontinent of India somewhere or you come from... Uh, the deserts of Mesopotamia or the jungles of sub-Saharan Africa, and you give someone a, a, a claret British passport and they don't immediately have the values of British people. It doesn't work like that. But that's what the globalists, the multiculturalists, insist is the case. Well, they um, and it just isn't. They don't right? believe in national sovereignty, do they? That's, right. that's the issue. They, they believe in freedom uh, of no borders, of freedom of movement, etc., etc. And you see... The thing about that, and actually there are a number of other things that need to be sort of um, sort of uh, disentangled here. One of those is foreign students. We're, we're totally reliant on foreign students to feed this obsession with 50% of people going to university, which was Tony Blair's ridiculous idea. <laughs> but also the institutions are now charging overseas um, students so much money uh, that bankrolls them. Now, I'd argue if, they, if you're relying on that, then actually you, we've got too many universities. But equally, we now know of one particular university that has no British people in it, not one, because they're relying on all that foreign money. Now, the other issue is once you come here, how many of them are bringing family members? Well, answer lots of them. Mm. They also are meant to complete their degree and leave, or they have a period of stay, which they're allowed to find a job, and then they're meant to leave. They don't. They disappear into the black market. So all of this has to be stopped. And what you need, actually, is a government willing to do it. I think there's another point to this as well. It's not actually just about the political will. It's also about the civil service. And you've mm. got to remember, the civil service actually doesn't believe in Brexit. It doesn't want any borders. It wants freedom of movement. It wants cheap labour. And it doesn't care what the price of that is. Mm. Mm. Now, I know this, it's, this, this topic of conversation, it's very easy for our opponents to level against us the charge of xenophobia or even or even racism it, it's got nothing to do with race so for example so i'd like to see a, a great decrease in albanian migration there's nothing to do with race or even xenophobia but if foreign people come to this country and refuse to assimilate in any way and bring their quite frankly divisive values among us then surely it's a conversation that has to be having if our opponents accuse us of something like xenophobia isn't that just something that those, those sticks and stones will just have to weather? 
Well, I think I think that's right. And when people resort to to that kind of name calling and and uh, behaving in that way, uh, when I was interviewing Jenny Jones yesterday, Baroness Jones, she mm-hmm. just hurled mm-hmm. insults at me throughout no, the interview. That, yeah. And and that and that means you're losing the argument. And she tried to pin everything, like for example, the energy crisis in this country, into Brexit. Well, it has absolutely nothing to do with Brexit, of course. Of course, but it's it's the bogeyman that's easy to point at. I don't think it's at all xenophobic or racist to say charity begins at home. You know, the way we treat, and one of my big bugbears is the way we treat elderly people or older people in society. For some reason, you're defined by what you do. It's the first thing we say, oh, who are you? What do you do? If you're retired, you don't do anything. So you're worthless in the sight of many. But actually, what about bringing older people back into the workforce to train younger people, British people to get the British jobs? That has to happen. And we're not doing that at the moment. But equally, at the same time, I think there is a culture that's grown up in certain areas where you're dependent and reliant on the state. And I was brought up um, to relative, you know, modest means. I was taught from the beginning that you make your own luck. Now, mm. you know, I also believe it's, it's about working hard and the dividends will pay off. And I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I now do. <laughs> and that includes being a junior doctor. Yeah. But the point is that, what we've got this massive gap now of working class uh, white British boys who are so disenfranchised and so frightened of their own shadows, and the, 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 it's their great asset, and we need to actually concentrate on them, make sure they get the education they want, but also radically reform education, get them into mm. apprenticeships, get them back into being builders and plumbers and all the rest of it, and stop importing cheap labor. It's, mm. it's a quick fix, it's not a long-term solution. Yeah, I just don't buy the argument that Britain simply wouldn't work without hundreds of thousands of new people coming in. I was told to be ridiculous. British people don't want to work. That's not true. And and also the thing is, even if that mindset and and I can understand how people get so disenfranchised, they feel that. Then actually, don't we owe it to them as a society to pick them up and Mm. to get them into employment? Because once you're employed, Mm. you have a purpose. You feel better about yourself. It, it, it's it, it's positive reinforcement. Yeah, I just think it's a, a, a terrible argument that if you have any sort of in-group preference for your own people, your own nation, <laughs> your own country, that is a, a, a sort of a xenophobic, racist beyond the pale. If you have any sort of love for your for your own nation, that's 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 ru- ultra right wing or something. I, I mean, we just have to we have to move the Overton window back. But you've got to remember, of course, we're up against the mainstream media that do- really doesn't like any of that um, that sentiment. But also, it's not just here in the UK. Across Europe, they're having major problems with the migrant crisis. And actually, uh, European and, and whilst I don't want to be in a federal Europe, I obviously want to be part of a European family where we are friends and we disagree, and that's fine. And they've got funny money and <laughs> uh, all the rest of it. But the point is, we should, um, you know, they're struggling in the same way that we are. But at the same time, I also see enormous patriotism from the Spanish, from the French, from the Germans. And there's nothing mm. wrong with that. Mm, absolutely. I'd like to move on from uh, that, uh, probably the hottest topic. But you mentioned there the civil service. Uh, I know that reform have got uh, quite strong, strong views about the civil service and how, for example, uh, uh, Richard uh, Titus talked about how the Home Office isn't isn't uh, fit for purpose and how they might uh, reform would even like to make a whole new department for um, for immigration control, but but just in a broadest sense, I like to talk about the institutions and, and the civil service and the concept of sort of civil liberties. 
Of course, we had the lockdown when the Tories put the whole nation under some sort of form of house arrest for a couple of years there, if anyone remembers. I mean, a terrible, terrible, ter again, completely unprecedented, really, in all of history to do something like that. Not predicated in any science at all. And, and you see, we did have a pandemic plan. We had one. They ignored it. And they made up the rules as they went along. Now, that was also uh, taking uh, terrible advice from people like Neil Ferguson, who, quite frankly, I think I could do better predictions than he could. Uh, and, and all this fear-mongering that went on. I think Boris Johnson obviously had a, a very turbulent time uh, with his own health, and that coloured his judgment. But, you know, what we did is we consigned generation of young people to not going to school. They still have major problems in terms of socialising, their academic achievement. Um, they, are, they are frightened still to this day. We've got elderly people still frightened to go out. I watch people still to this day in London with masks on. Why? Why mm. are you wearing a mask? It doesn't do anything. It's a symbol of oppression. That's all that is. And it, they wanted you to be frightened because when you frighten people, you can control people. And mm. that's all that was about. And you can actually say that as a medical doctor. <laughs> you I can't accuse you of saying that you're not qualified. The masks that people wear about are absolutely hopeless. Now, if you want to wear a mask, you want an FFP3 mask. So you want, you know, it's a big mask. It's not what you buy and that people were wearing. And I mean, it makes me laugh on aircraft when they said, we're not going to fly you around unless you wear a mask. Why? Mm. What does it do? Nothing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, on a slightly related topic to do with sort of the, con the very idea of sort of freedom um, and civil liberties that the lockdowns were, you know, flew in the face of. I asked Richard about this as well, and I wonder what your thoughts and feelings are on it. Just about the WEF in general, um, just sort of the, the, the spectre of this sort of supranational unelected body, which seems to be able to dictate policy to governments around the world. I mean, Richard said he would have no truck with them. What's no, your feeling? I, I totally agree. How dare unelected people, a global elite, these are the people who who prance around in Learjets and decide the future of uh, the world, and then they get the government's buy-in. I mean, it, it, to me, it's, it's a dirty organisation. It's not where we want to be going. The whole point of elected politicians is they're elected by the people they serve to enact the policies the people want. It is not to be there to rubber stamp policies coming from on high. Let's take a very good example of that, which is this obsession with net zero, which, by the way, also I don't think is based in science. Uh, I put this again to uh, Jenny Jones yesterday, Baroness Jones, and she said, well, the, the science is settled. No, it isn't. Mm -hmm. And actually, there are lots of scientists who don't believe that this is man-made to the extent it is. But also, you know, you've got two options. Either we, we uh, dig a hole and jump in it and just, you know, pretend it's not happening and turn off all the lights, or we actually do something about it. We learn to live with an increasingly changing climate, which has always happened naturally, but also... It's a failure yet again of government policy. We should have built nuclear power stations. When I was young and about, I well, know, eight, I was obsessed with nuclear power. I grew up in Suffolk near Sizewell. Um, had we built all these power stations, we wouldn't be in the mess that we now are. And so now we're trying to blight the landscape with ridiculous windmills that actually aren't uh, green at all. Uh, we should be fracking as a short-term process. We should have nuclear. We need an energy mix. And if Ukraine hasn't taught us anything, it's that we need security of energy supply. Yeah, no, absolutely. So going on to the topic of energy and, and climate, because they, they're interrelated topics, really, aren't they? Um, it seems to me that, um, I mean, you, 
with, with people like that, that hold this sort of view are just labelled as a climate denier, it seems to me that it's just simply a mechanism for power and control. Um, and, and, and I mean, you know, I'm no scientist, climate scientist, but it seems to me when you look back through deep history, the uh, sort of the, the geological past, um, carbon dioxide has been fantastically higher than it is today. And, and you had mega, mega flora, a mega fauna back then. Um, you know, CO2 in the atmosphere is counted, I think, in a few hundred parts per million. It seems to me the sun drives climate change, or perhaps even volcanoes and things like that, much more than CO2. Uh, but apparently, apparently you're just shouted, shouted down, down as a, as as a, a crazy, crazy person, person, if you say things I think, like that. I think, yeah, well, this is the problem. It, I think you have to realise, I mean, this was brilliant. Yesterday she said to me, uh, today, this was yesterday, uh, is the hottest day in 120,000 years. And I was absurd, like, absurd. How yeah. do you know that? And where were, were you there 100,000 <laughs> years ago? Mm. Um, it's nonsense. The whole thing is nonsense. And it's and once you have a um, a number of lies, and if everything is then predicated on lies, you just spin the tail out of all control. There is another point to this, which is even if we get to, and even if we get to net zero, and by the way, the Greens want to go further. They want to go to absolute zero, which mm. I think is physiologically impossible. But anyway, <laughs> they want to go to that. But also, what is the, you know, the job of government is to put the British people first. Even if we consign everyone to poverty and we all walk around in Hessian and we turn our lights off and we don't have any computers and we eat shrubs, let's say. The impact of glo on, on the world is less than 1% of global emissions. So what are we doing? Mm. Yeah, I've seen that, you know, um, I think CO2 emissions for Britain are the lowest they've ever been since like the mid-19th century or something. We're not in the top 10. I think China's footprint is bigger. This is buying into the whole thing, which I don't even. But if you were to buy into the, the whole paradigm, China's is bigger than everyone else in the world's put together. And yet you don't see these sort of, well, climate fascists, really, people like Greta Thunberg or someone like that. You don't see them lobbying the Chinese. They haven't really got much to say to the no, CCP or, or the OPEC, OPEC countries. countries well, they? I, I would suggest that Just Stop Oil go for a jolly nice excursion to Russia or they go to India or they go to China and go and throw some protests there and see how you get on. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's just a way to sort of control people um, sort of fairly nakedly, as far as I can see. Um, I would like to talk about because uh, it's a well, one thing I want to talk about about Reform UK is that it is it has got a, a a whole manifesto. It has got a system for government. It's not just about migration and about uh, fracking and things. There, we, it would it would actually function perfectly well as a government next year. Yeah, I absolutely believe, believe that. that. So I'd like to talk about the economy. And I think in the broadest sense, if you go on the website and you look at the manifesto and things. We want to lower taxes. We want, we want yes. a smaller government in the broadest terms. Yeah. Small government, actually conservative with a small C, genuinely so, say, right? I mean, I mean, so we do want to lower taxes. Well, so, so if you look at where we are currently, we, we have some really quite radical policies, which is to raise the basic threshold to £20,000, I would argue, as Richard. Before income tax kicks Before in. Before income tax kicks right. in. So yeah. you can earn the first 20000 tax-free. That's a great idea, isn't it? So those people who are poorly paid, let's go back to our problem of the skills gap. So these people would then be able to take that money home to feed their families without giving the tax man anything. Also, the, the top rate uh, is 50,000 currently. We would raise that to say 70,000 because 
actually, many people caught in that aren't high earners at all. These are mi people with middle incomes who, you know, and actually uh, they earn good money, but the money disappears in tax. Why aren't we incentivizing people to actually have, you know, to actually have a brilliant uh, life and to say, look, the better you do. And when I lived in America, actually, this is quite an important point. When I lived in America, the um, it was all about aspiration. Where are you going? Not where you're from. And in this country, it seems that when you do well, we go and stamp on you. So mm. that sort of thing, for example, corporations, the backbone of Britain's uh, economy is SMEs, small, medium enterprises. It's not the multinationals. So we would raise corporation tax up to uh, 100. So it's only payable when you make more than 100,000 in profit. You see, if you actually did all that stuff, and let's say a company makes 80 grand in profit, you know what they'll do? They'll employ someone. Mm. Mm. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just seems to me, I don't want to go too far down this route. Um, but, you know, if you wanted to get quite libertarian about it, you can describe taxes as sort of a state-sponsored theft. I wouldn't go quite that far, but I'm definitely down that route. People just want to be taxed less. It's just not just for central governments to tax people 40%, 50%, and then taxes on top on every, all your commodities and on and on and on and on. It, again, it's not really how human society has worked for the vast majority of our history. Well, well, it acts as a disincentive to do well, doesn't it? Of course it does. so what, yeah. what we need to do, and there is an argument to have flat taxation, actually. Why are we penalising those people who've worked hard and who've done well and are at the upper ends? Because actually, what all that does is it drives them to have tax avoidance vehicles to hide the tax from the tax man, or they go abroad. And that's what we're seeing is the drain of great minds leaving this country. I'd much rather say, let's have flat taxation, we'll raise the minimum threshold up to 20,000, Flat taxation, all of this, and this was done under George Osborne. All the all the modelling shows that actually your tax take would be higher. Right, right. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's a definitely a balance to be struck. Absolutely, it's not simply the more we tax people, the more income we'll get as the government from the government's point of view. The more, the higher we raise tax, the more money we get in. It doesn't work. It's not as simple as that, is it? It's not even close. No. So again, you know, the, the clue is back in the name of the party reform. So we need to reform the tax system. We need to reform all of this stuff. We need to reform the, the migration issues, our immigration uh, strategy. But also, from my point of view, one of the other big things we need to do is reform the NHS. It's an absolute basket case. Mm, and when people mm. say, oh, it's the envy of the world, where? Well, mm. Who says that? Yeah, it's not... It? We've never put so much money in, and it's not the nasty Tories not spending money. That's not true. It's badly spent. Uh, we are not seeing the money go down onto the floor. We've reduced our beds from 300,000 down to 140,000. We have an increasingly aging population. We don't have enough GPs. We've got millions of people coming into this country who can't actually see a doctor. You've got doctors mm -hmm. under so much pressure, they're resigning and making the whole problem worse. And also, whilst I'm at it and on the bandwagon, the British Medical Association are to blame for this. They're the ones that stopped the numbers of doctors being trained. They're the ones that capped it at 7,500 a year. So for them to bleat on and cry that we don't have enough doctors, it's your fault. Why did they do that as a doctor yourself? Why did they do that? What was their rationale behind that? How does that make any sense? How is that in anybody's interest? It's power. And because then they could control the market because they basically have a monopoly, don't they? So if you actually don't have enough... That's so monopoly, cynical. That's so cynical. Of course, but it's also true. Right. Yeah, yeah no, sorry, I interrupted you there. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. 
but, but but let's but you see the British Medical Association go further. You know, saying and I understand that junior doctors do need a pay rise. It's a really tough job. Um, but at the same time, so then you're not reading the room if you're demanding 35% pay uplift when people who run private businesses have really struggled. They many of them didn't get furloughed. We have a million. Uh, people who were not furloughed, who had got absolutely no help from the government. These people are in state jobs, by the way, paid for by you and me, and they want 35% uplift. It's not going to happen. You can, you need to read the room. And um, the problem is you've got really quite nasty left-wing Marxists in there now. Mm. People uh, like um, Viv Vivek uh, Trapedi, for example, who's in there, um, and uh, various other members of the Junior Doctor Committee and and you know and i've watched some of these these young doctors they've been graduated a year and they are very very militant they are also trying to help people leave the service what i want to do and i've written a whole report about this is we need to radically reform the nhs which is to say let's have an honest open conversation about the services we do provide and we don't provide look can we provide all things to all man no we can't so let's have an honest conversation about that but also it needs to be a partnership with the patient. You can't just go, oh, look, I'm going to eat tons of McDonald's and I'm going to get really fat and then expect the state to pick up the bill for my health care. It mm. has to be a partnership. And mm. so I would look, instead of reinventing the wheel, let's look at some of the other healthcare systems in the world. And the one that I would probably look the most closely at is Australia. Right. OK, because, I mean, the thing that I think a lot of ordinary people who might not necessarily know a great deal about sort of uh, political philosophy or or uh, economics on the broadest scale, they look at the amount of spending that our state does on the NHS, and of course it's a a, a lovely a lovely idea to have to have free at the point of uh, of entry all healthcare across the board. That's a lovely sort of utopian idea, but the reality of it is that either it just costs an insane amount of money and absolutely insane amount of money will sort of bankrupt the nation in the end, right? Uh, how, is, how is it possible? It just doesn't seem sustainable to keep that dream alive. As horrible as it is to think that, oh, we might have to go to uh, an American-style um, type of healthcare where if you don't have enough money, then you just simply don't get the help. But what? there's no other... What can you do? You can't just have it free forever for everyone, especially if you're not importing so many people. Sorry. But let's a bit, which is that actually, if you were to design the NHS, you wouldn't design what we currently have. It was an amalgamation of existing services in 1948, and it was set up with one specific purpose. And that was, if you were sick, the NHS was there to pick you up, make you better, and get you back to work. It's now changed beyond all recognition with the advent of the treatments we can do. So when when I first graduated, people who had a heart attack, had, you know, treatment was pretty much five days of bed rest and see whether you lived or died. I mean, it wasn't quite that bad. But now, of course, we can give you angiograms, angioplasty, coronary artery bypass graft. We now can treat multiple numbers of cancers. We've got monoclonal antibodies. We've got immunotherapy. We've got stuff that costs a lot of money. But, but somehow you're going to have to find a way to pay for this. But also, in terms of the tax burden, we've got increasing numbers of people retiring and not enough people in work. So that actually, the numbers don't work. Now, I wouldn't go to an American-style system because I think it's prejudicial against people who, have, uh, who don't have much, or if anything. The Australian system is interesting because you, uh, the, the state provides basic 
care for everyone, but you then have a private provider, uh, which you then opt into, you pay into, uh, and then that can speed up your operation or indeed give you faster service or whatever it is. So you basically have these systems running in parallel. The crucial point about this is at the moment, private healthcare is not tax deductible in this country, and it needs to be. Right. right. I mean, I hate to uh, go back to where we started. Well, I don't hate to, <laughs> but to go back to where we started a little bit about just to touch again on the migration issue, that it seems to me a lot of the people in the Labour Party and the Lib Dems and the Greens, or anyway, or even the Tories, actually, they seem to be, they, they, know, they say that there's a crisis in the NHS. They say that there's a crisis with waiting lists or with housing or with schools or any one of these number of things, but never seem to connect the dots very deliberately, don't connect the dots with no. hundreds of thousands of new people year on year coming in. And now, yeah. uh, it, it, obviously, that sort of obviously that is going to break the system. It's going to mean the numbers don't add up anymore, surely. Uh, exactly, exactly right. And of course, if you come here as a young person with a young family, you're, the burden on the NHS is higher. Older mm. people, the burden is higher because they have multiple illnesses and comorbidities. So mm. all of that, and you're right, you know, it goes back to actually the fundamental tenet here, which is actually what are we doing with older people? Because they need more care. We have no social care provision. That's a mess, the Department of Health and Social Care, because it doesn't work. Um, that needs to be urgently addressed. It also solves a number of other problems. We've got elderly people who are hanging on to houses, which are far too big for them, because they can't afford to move. They're asset rich, but cash poor. They can't move. At the same time, we haven't got enough houses for people with families. So there needs to be a big, re big, big rejiggling of, of, of how that might work. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would then liberate that. That comes into another policy, which is actually we need to build more homes because we've got people, young people on good salaries who can't afford that. Rents are going through the roof. The government says they're going to build 300,000 homes a year. They've managed 191,000, which is poor, uh, to say the least. British Sunat this week up saying, oh, we're going to build a million homes. I don't believe you. Um, and so, so it's basically being squeezed from a number, a number of ends. But also when you look back in terms of the population demographic, when you've had a shift in the population of 10 million people coming in, or indeed adding new cities almost every single year in terms of population coming into this country, then it, it, it's no wonder that we can't cope. Mm, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's honestly crazy to me. It's crazy to me. Well, one other thing I'd like to ask you about while I still have some of your time is the reform of the electoral system itself, PR. Yes. Um, so I just would like to give you uh, an opportunity to talk about that. Well, look, I mean, the thing is, I always believed in first past the post, but it's incredibly difficult for small parties to do well in that, just because of the very nature of the way it works. Now, in the European Union elections, that was done on a, a form of PR called the Dahon Principle. And actually, it, without that, the Brexit Party would never have been so successful. And there is a very good argument now to say that actually our current system is broken. We career from one major party to the next major party. There's no long-term strategy. You know, actually, going what links beautifully into this is the NHS. I want to take it out of the politicians' hands. Have a 20-year strategy. Same with energy. Let's have a 20-year strategy. Let's not have a four-year strategy or an electoral cycle strategy. But then also, what, what is fascinating about where we are in the polls? So Reform UK, for the first time, we're now consistently hitting 10 11% in the polls. That has, is unheard of. And, and that is before push comes to shove. So the Conservative Party knows it's in serious trouble. But equally, Labour's lead is soft. 
it's not as it's not what the Labour Party think it is. And that's mm. why Keir Starmer is trying to be careful. And if you notice rowing back today on the trans issues, for example, this is all about I'm sure Blair is advising him, actually, mm. uh, is back in there. But also it looks increasingly likely that the Labour Party may well uh, be the largest party, but without an overall majority. And if that is the case, then they would team up with the Lib Dems. The price of that is proportional representation. And at that point, for parties like Reform UK, it's a completely different ballgame. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, just looking ahead to the general election, which uh, should be, we will be called next year at some point, um, assuming it's not earlier for whatever reason. Um, so reform are sort of, you know, we are a, 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 a truly serious party in terms of looking to field lots and lots of candidates. Um, oh, yeah. I myself should be, will be standing in uh, South Swindon. And uh, oh, right. so, uh, and so um, yeah, polling at some, something like 10, sometimes a bit higher, 10% or sometimes a little bit higher. Um, but it, I think what you touched on there is very, very interesting that, People seem to be abandoning the Conservative Party in droves because they see what they've done to the country. Well, they're not Conservative. So, so, yeah, they're sort of destroyed or broken the country on all sorts of levels and all sorts of ways. And yet they know, I think, a lot of people realise that the Labour Party, unless you're an actual socialist or leftist, know that the Labour Party or the Lib Dems would be even worse, even more destructive, gaslight you even more... Um, and so I think I, I think there is a, a, a large proportion of voters out there that are looking for somebody to the right of the current Conservative Party that are at least have the nation's best interests at heart. Is that too much to ask? No, well, I mean, Richard, I think Richard, well, Richard makes a really good point. He calls the Conservative Party the consocialists. And it's right, true. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. we, we have a high the highest tax burden uh, that, you know, that we've seen in 70 years. The fact is they're not a Conservative. And what we need, actually, I'm a fiscal conservative, but a social liberal. Um, now, all of us in reform have come from slightly different parts of that spectrum. But uh, what we do have in, in common is we want this country, as I said right at the beginning, which is it's time to make Britain great. Mm, and, mm. and, you know, the clue is in the title. It's Great Britain. And we seem to have forgotten all of this. So um, mm, one mm. of the things that's really fascinating to me is um, it's about herd mentality. So we're now reaching that tipping point where people know of us, even despite the blackout from mainstream media, which we, we are addressing and we're getting better with. And we, we're starting to get on to things like daily politics, BBC shows, pest and those kind of things. But that's taken a long time from people like me and Richard and Alex and so on and Ben. And, um, but that's taken a, a long time. But, but there is a sense of herd mentality. So people know who we are. But people are so tribal, so tribal. And, you know, mm -hmm. people will say, I'm a Labour man. My family is a Labour family. We, you know, we go back generations. I sense the biggest shift I've ever seen in British politics. So people now know who we are. They're very excited. They look at that opportunity. But now they have to walk over the cliff. They have mm -hmm. to make that decision. And when they're in the sanctity of the, the ballot box or with them in the ballot box in a polling station, that's the time they can actually change history. But mm. ultimately, it's down to each individual. Yeah, I, I very much like the idea, the, the, the message that people should vote for what they believe in, not what they're afraid of. Correct. Um, I, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like too much to us, but as you say, people are very, very, very tribal. Um, 
nothing to do with the Conservative Party. Lots of people are very conservative in their views. They don't like to change their mind. <laughs> and, and, but, I, you know, I do think that something has got to give where the modern Tory party is not conservative in any way, haven't got the best interests of the, the citizen, the subjects of this country at heart. That can't last forever. It cannot. No, and I think there's something else really interesting going on. We now know of many Conservative MPs, backbenchers, who are so frightened. I mean, in the old days, a 20,000 majority would be seen as a safe seat. It's not anymore. So we, you know, we are in constant com contact and conversation with various members of Parliament for, from different parties who are frightened for their own, I suppose, future. But also they feel that the parties they're in currently have abandoned their principles. And so therefore, uh, I think there is active discussion about some of those politicians uh, leaving their current ships and joining us. Now, again, that is, is game changing. And, and this is all about confidence, isn't it? Mm. So I think under Richard, Richard's done a fantastic job. Nigel obviously is out there as honorary president. I mean, it just shows actually, you know, with Nigel, with Coots, with the whole of the NatWest saga, it shows that actually, yet again, we are changing history. We did it before with the Brexit vote. Nigel now has, you know, uh, Alison Rose has now uh, stepped down from, um, from NatWest. And I think further heads may well roll. And this is down to Nigel. This is how important we are. This is how important reform is. It's, a, it's, it's not just a mantra. It's actually about changing this country and reforming this country. Great stuff. Well, I'd like to leave it here on something you said there, I think is absolutely... Vital, perhaps the, 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 the most key thing of, of all is you mentioned confidence there. And um, I, I've heard it said, or, or uh, Alan Clark, Lord Clark, um, not, the, not the current living one, the old uh, historian, the father of Alan Clark, um, once said that whole civilizations can ruin themselves with cynicism just as easily, just as, easily as with bombs. Um, a country, a nation, a civilization even can implode, can 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 die through simply the lack of confidence. And and that's and and I think a lot of people they only need a slight touch, a slight nudge to say actually we can do it, actually we can win, actually it isn't over, actually I'm not just going to roll over and give up. So that's really interesting. People say, I'm so disenfranchised. I hate the political system. I hate this country. I'm leaving this country. What I would say to them is, it's not time to leave. It's mm. time to turn around and it's time mm. to fight. Mm. It's time to reclaim the country. And it is time to reform this country. And actually, if we all were brave enough, come together and vote for what you believe in, as your point, and, and you made that, and it's a very valid point, but actually vote for what you believe in not what you're afraid of. And that, I think, is the ultimate message because actually we're providing a really positive message. We, as you said, also have the policies to go in place. We have a great team of very, very experienced people who have been politicians before, and I reckon we're ready for government. Hmm. Absolutely, I think so too. Well, Dr Ball, thank you very much for your time. We'll leave it there, but I honestly really, really appreciate your time. You're welcome back, honestly, whenever you want. Um, well, thank you. It's, it's been a great conversation. So, um, well, once again, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you.